Hello and welcome to the Technecast, an arts and humanities research podcast run and presented by Felix Clutson, Julian Klan, Polly Hember, and me, Edwin Gilson. This is our third episode on our theme of genre. In the last episode, we heard two presentations from Frankie Hallam and myself, both PhD researchers at the University of Surrey, on notions of science fiction and climate fiction. Following that, we thought we'd expand upon those issues further in an in-person conversation held at the University of Surrey. Over the next half an hour, you'll hear a discussion between myself, Frankie and Felix, whose voice you'll hear next, on the ways in which climate change has challenged and complicated ideas of genre. So, over to Felix. Hello everyone and welcome to Surrey University. I am delighted, for the first time in a long time on the Technicast, to be joined in person by our guests. So thank you to Edwin and Frankie for your lovely pieces. And I look forward to uh, going a bit deeper into what you were talking about on your presentations. To start with, Frankie, could you take us through exactly what genre means? So I think what we kind of understand genre to be now is it's it's kind of different from its origins but the origin of the term genre broadly defined um certain recognizable like tropes that would be used as like a financial um, motivator so it would describe certain like markets in pulp magazine traditions or like penny anthology traditions which would revolve around specific um, recognisable characters, recognisable tropes. Examples would be science fiction, which is where I work, but also crime, um, medical dramas and romance. I know a, a lot of those, you know, when, when you look back at the, especially the Victorian era, a lot of those texts were kind of serialised in particular publications, right, where yeah. people would search out the sort of titles that they they wanted. Yeah, um, and I think, I think that origin in those kind of like serialised small community market um, pulp origin um, I think that's given a lot of genre fiction um, I guess a, a bad reputation um, I have a lot of problems with this term but a lot of writers in the Americas in um, the 50s called it the ghetto of science fiction um, which is, is a very like highly problematic term Ouch! but it describes how if you wrote genre fiction or science fiction you were essentially deemed not a a real like mm-hmm. artist it was it was separated from literary fiction which is has a reputation of being high art about being like depth of character about um being like real and serious and political whereas you'd read um like an, an alien invasion story for a bit of a laugh what about how people feel about genres from a critical perspective i think those uh preconceived notions of genre fiction being like a, a, an unserious genre. I don't think that holds as much weight as it... it um, I, I think nowadays those distinctions aren't as prominent as they used to be, but I do still think that there is a certain consideration for genre fiction to be not as serious as like the literary or like the artistic literature. And science fiction and climate fiction, or sci-fi and cli-fi for the, uh, for the kids out there, um, has you know come under scrutiny, and labels are a very interesting thing. So I'm going to ask you a bit more about how we should try and classify them. You know, um, <laughs> and we're going to we're going to start with um, looking at scale, 
because genre label seems to be something that kind of boxes them in, mm. but actually um, time and scale can you know vary a lot and can play a big part in how these things are constructed and received. So I was wondering, uh, Edwin, if you wouldn't mind starting us off, if you could elaborate a bit more on that sort of thing. Sure, yeah. Well, I think the issue of scale, both in the sense of space and time, is one of the central, central features of what has been called climate fiction, um, in that authors will try and convey a sense of planet and a sense of deeper time than might otherwise be expected from fiction in order to try and represent the vast spatio-temporal scale of, of climate change, basically. And I think there's quite a productive tension between place and planet in that how do you evoke a sense of planet mm from the perspective of place. So that's kind of what my research is interested in and I'm just more generally more, more interested in that question as well. Because for many people, they're not able necessarily in their everyday lives to have that planetary perspective. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, none of us can really live at the level of the planetary. I mean, we all live in places, don't we? It's not as if place just becomes suddenly meaningless because climate change is a planetary process. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of interested in how authors have used place and literary setting to illuminate the vast scale of climate change um, and in that way kind of connect the local and the global, I suppose. Well, it's, it's interesting uh, as well because you think about things like the internet bringing people together and bringing cultures together, but actually maybe climate change is something that is actually making the difference in, in place starker between different cultures and different landscapes. Yeah, speaking to that, um, a lot of experiences of, especially in like the, the the response to a lot of apocalyptic science fiction is that some people kind of comment that what science fiction depicts isn't like a, a fantastical scenario, it's things that are very real now experiences and even like past experiences, especially for people in lower income areas or who are people of colour who have been vastly impacted by climate change um, for years and years and it's only sort of more recently getting into that more public consciousness. You both brought up um, issues surrounding the label, the genre label of sci-fi or mm. um, cli-fi um, and I wondered if you could just explain a bit more about what those problems are. We, we, the main two that we had were sort of the marginalisation of things and then also actually resistance from authors themselves uh, to be labelled. Um, so I don't know, uh, Edwin, if you'd like to, to start us off. Well, yeah, I know Frankie gave some good examples of authors who have disowned the sci-fi tag, but I'm quite against climate fiction as a whole label, as I'm sure mm. came across, hopefully at least, in my, uh, in my script, because it just seems now that, and the way that novels are marketed now as well, climate change is kind of part of the zeitgeist almost isn't it as much as it's a kind of palpable reality I feel like it's also becoming more and more a topic that authors feel like they should tackle because it's increasingly unavoidable so you get novels from all genres novels from literary so-called literary fiction science fiction trying to represent climate change in some way so to just use one kind of genre or even subgenre label to contain all this fiction seems increasingly inappropriate I suppose that would be my take on climate fiction. I, I do think I agree with um, Edwin's comment because I think, I mean, I'm a huge fan of genre and I think that 
when we kind of use these tropes, we're often commenting on them, and that means something quite interesting for literature, but a lot of the time, genre is transforming into a marketing term rather than something that describes something like implicit in the text itself. Um, the way I kind of think and use genre is more, I guess, intertextual. So when you're using genre, you're implicitly like relating your text to other texts and other like histories of text. And I think that's quite important. There's a lot of tradition in sci-fi of building on other trends, other like modes of writing, um, and that kind of more collaborative um, sphere, I'd say, is something that's not unique to genre, but certainly more common. I'd say that genre fiction tends to have more communities than literary fiction. Like you'd have like big sci-fi conventions, big fantasy conventions. I think some of those things definitely resonate. I that reminded me of reading about um, the reggae and ska scene in the in the 70s, <laughs> when lots of artists would cover each other's work, and there was a lot of freedom to do it, and people enjoyed listening to their work being re reinterpreted and stuff. And when you look at the history of, of music in America, for example, so much of it is building on, on what's come before and then introducing those styles um, you know, into your own and, and creating something new. And that sounds, you know, obviously there are ways that that might not function brilliantly, but that sounds like a positive um, thing to do, especially when we look at how we're going to um, tackle the, uh, the oncoming storm well, I think it could be sorry I think it could be positive but also negative in that you get I'm thinking about two of the novels I work with um, uh, Claire Bay Watkins Golf in Citrus and He Don't Look Picky's California both of which have kind of cults in them and, and cult figures and that's kind mm. of has been a kind of genre fiction trope right and a Californian trope yeah which is the which is my regional case study I work on California fiction so sometimes if it's a little bit hackneyed, like here comes the kind of cult leader again, you know, there's obviously there is an intertextual element to that, isn't there? But also it feels maybe a little bit tired at this point, that mm. kind of trope. You've got to strike the right balance, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Um, it's quite fun though. But anyway. Oh, well, I think we all like referencing things that we've seen and heard, right? And one of the ways that, like we are saying about communities, one of, one of the ways that we connect is through the culture that we consume and mm. comparing opinions and stuff. Um, and we've seen very recently, as um, you will know if you listen to our last episode, um, that you know things like fantasy, we've seen the Marvel series, etc. These things, especially if marketed in the right way, are still very, very popular, even if they are, you know, very genre specific. And I wondered on that note, Frankie, if you could help us out a little bit because I sort of feel like I know, but I don't think <laughs> I really know about what the difference between fantasy and sci-fi is. Yes, you're not the only one. Um, <laughs> the simple kind of basic explanation is that fantasy explores things that could not come to pass um, and science fiction is grounded in some potential reality. Um, those are very broad and I, I'm not even sure if they're true. A lot of science fiction that I deal with um, they do include things like like rapid like hybrid transformations into monsters, big world ending um, cataclysms and like gods and deities in them. I think more and more those terms aren't clear cut. I think a lot of the time, again, we're saying a, a lot of the time you 
use them in like a marketing term like oh if you like um you know lord of the rings you'll appreciate the the same tropes in game of thrones um but i'm not sure if they're like useful distinctions in my thesis i broadly refer to sf as my kind of like accumulating term of like science fiction speculative fiction um and the such like yeah i was uh, i was thinking about the jedi and whether they were Science fiction or fantasy. Or indeed realism. Or indeed realism. I think it's a a space opera, really, um, which are usually quite fantastical. Yeah. Um, Now, you were saying about um, speculative fiction, and you had a very interesting point in your um, presentation about things that were speculative and are now real. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of those things around when we look at kind of the crazy stuff that's been been going down and how we kind of reconcile them and when it comes to looking at texts Mm. how do we approach that idea because that's quite difficult when when something seems just kind of out of this world but actually then become part of real life you know even stuff like the moon landing yes so uh, so a lot of the work i um look at in my thesis involves science fictional responses to colonialism and historical colonialism and there's a lot of critique about how science fiction historically has sort of replicated those like imperial histories. And for a lot of these, I guess, like counter responses, it's these examples of like an alien spaceship, like reaching a new land to like, you know, colonize the natives isn't like some fantastical scenario. It's it's like a lived long history, especially for um, people of like global fiction. I look at works from uh, the Caribbean and West Africa. And uh, Nella Hopkinson, an author of Afrofuturism, talks about what it's like writing from the other side of the spaceship. So being like the people who have that spaceship like land on their shores, essentially. Interesting. Um, really interesting that, yeah. Uh, that's a nice phrase as well, the other side of the spaceship. Well, yeah, I'd say in response to your question about uh, how do you maybe represent what, what, what may once have seemed like science fiction and is now reality. I'd say a few of the novels I look at, they start as if they are kind of works of familiar realism, right? So true to life, set in the here and now, familiar settings, or at least settings that we might imagine are true to life. Um, and then it all starts to get a bit weird, basically, I think. Like, and then they, you know, authors will bring in plot devices of unfamiliar um, things like I use the example in the Alexandra Kleeman novel, something new under the sun of this of this water W A T hyphen R, which is a private company that have moved in amid California's drought. Um, and obviously, that's a bit of critique of capitalism and everything. Um, but yeah, so but you wouldn't for the first maybe like fifty hundred pages of that novel, you'd think, yeah, this is a pretty recognisable work of realism. I know where I am. I've got my feet, you know, the, the ground beneath my feet, and then the rug is kind of pulled from beneath you and suddenly you're a bit disorientated, um, which I think is a really clever way of trying to make that kind of transition from recognisable real life, true to life, to speculative fiction. But also, because the parameters of the possible are changing all the time in climate change, these things could happen in the future, may, may already be underway. And Frankie, it's interesting, I can't remember who said it, but you had a great quote about the definition of science fiction originally 
containing the idea that these texts would disorient the reader or unsettle them. And, and that is sort of exactly what, what you're saying there, Edwin. And, and I wonder why that's important to this sort of genre yeah. fiction. Uh, so the quote was by critic Darko Suvin, and he talks about science fiction as a mode of cognitive estrangement. And what he kind of does is take that idea of cognition from its like kind of literal more interpretation of just like our understanding. Um, so rather than science fiction being a, a fiction of science, it's a fiction of our cognitive experience of interfacing with the world and how we can shift that interface and how we can experience something that is um, different from our world. He calls that difference uh, the novum. So the novum of uh, some dystopic science fictions is the time. So you're displaced out of your present day and you're in a near future or a far future or the past. And that's kind of the, the point of science fictional thought, um, according to Suvin. That also strikes me as very interesting when you look at some of the, the political stuff, like 1984, for example. Yeah. Um, that really plays into that because, you know, we have an emotional reaction to literature. But that's what storytelling is supposed to do, right? As well, yeah. transform facts and realities into compelling narratives, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you still want it to be like a good story is a good story, right? Um, yeah. And yeah, of course. that should theoretically be the be the crux of it. Whether you're speaking allegorically or you're trying to make a point or you're just yeah. Well, this is the, I mean, I think we've spoken before, me and Frankie, about didacticism. And some of the some some criticisms of novels that I look at have been that they are quite didactic and can be a bit unsubtle in their communication of these realities and facts. There might literally be scientist characters who will <laughs> explain, who will explain things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In a fairly what could be construed as a fairly heavy-handed way. But I know Frankie, you said that a good kind of work of climate fiction should not be didactic, ideally. Yeah, I think. What I love about the climate fiction that I kind of approach in my work is that it's not instructional. It's not trying to tell someone how to, you know, re react or respond to the climate crisis. Because a lot of my work is about uh, the imaginary, and one of the first kind of steps in a lot of these texts is about um, if you can change the imagination and if you can change how you think and create and respond to climate change that's the the thing you need to do before you can actually make any practical changes if in your mind climate change is imagined as this far off future or this big like untenable concept that you as like a local human can't really uh, experience then you are going to have more of a trouble of taking those then practical further steps. It, it's more about, yeah, responding in, I guess, more creative, more imaginary, more weird, speculative ways to get you out of that current mode of thinking and, yeah, think science fictionally or climate fictionally. And so if I was to ask you how you would like authors to approach writing about the future, mm. you, you, you made a, a really interesting point about writing about the future and the present uh, at the same time almost. 
Um, how would you like authors to approach it from a, your sort of your personal perspective? Personal perspective. Well, all the texts that I really enjoy researching are very clear about how the past isn't bounded to the past. Mm. So a lot of the texts I look at, even though they're set in the future, they're just as much about the past. They're about like the Middle Passage. They're about colonialism. And they're very much involved with how those events cannot be meaningfully separated from our present day, and they cannot therefore be meaningfully separated from our environmental dystopias, because one thing is not different from the other. They are co-creating, as it were. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think just picking up on that, a sense of scale, again, is essential, I would say, both Mm. in a spatial sense and a temporal sense, because we know that you know, Generation Z have basically grown up with the spectre of climate change hanging over them, haven't they? It'd be disingenuous not to acknowledge that, not just Generation Z, but obviously they're the newest generation that have. So we kind of feel like it's disingenuous for a work of fiction not to at least acknowledge those anxieties and cast a bit further into the future to wonder what the world might look like when they are, you know, 50, 60. And also in a, yeah, again, in a kind of geographical sense, because climate change is a planetary process, Again, there has to be some acknowledgement of how certain societies, certain regions, certain nations perpetuate climate injustice by using way more than their fair share of greenhouse gas emissions, for example. You know, this is the whole thing about how maybe how um, climate change has, has challenged notions of realism a bit in the sense that realism has often been quite time bound and the settings have often been quite domesticated, right? But if we have this planetary reality unfolding before us, there has to be some sense of something beyond the immediate, beyond the domestic, Mm. I'd say, which is already being done a lot in climate fiction, I would say, but that's how I think it should be approached, for sure. To speak to that as well, um, I think that kind of more planetary perspective is important for climate justice. So, for example, a lot of people will kind of consider, well, you know, this climatological disaster isn't happening in my backyard. A lot of wealthier nations will offshore their like oil extractive processes, their pollution dumping, their sewage waste dumping into other regions, into like the global south. So these kind of planetary perspectives are important for taking that holistically, like just because we're dumping pollution in um, offshore, it doesn't mean it's not happening to our planet. Yes, and I would just add to that by saying, you know, this is something I've asked myself and I've been asked it as well by others, is that I'm focusing on California, right? So I'm focusing on a very rich, mostly rich, global north region, which seems to maybe overlook those injustices. But what I'm really trying to do, especially with the first part of the thesis, is to see how authors have connected California and specifically Los Angeles to a sense of planet, right? So to kind of, which would illuminate then how somewhere like Los Angeles, which has, again, uses, you know, way, way more than its fair share of greenhouse gas emissions. It's like being called the anti-nature by Jenny Price. And it's like, so it's almost like the poster child for environmental degradation, really. So then how, there has to be a sense of responsibility, doesn't there, from regions like that. Even though, you know, within LA itself, there's massive economic inequalities, obviously. But there has to be a sense of how regions and nations in the USA have, perpetuated and have been responsible for those injustices. And I think fiction can help with that by connecting place and planet, basically. But also that unsettling 
thing we were talking about earlier. Hopefully that is the sort of thing that can make people think in a, maybe, in a way that maybe they don't when they just put on the news or, or whatever they go about their day-to-day lives. They actually need something to take them out of themselves to be able to, to look at something like that fresh and, and think about how their actions affect other people elsewhere or you know, the, the, the planet as a whole. It's tough though, isn't it? I mean, like, I'm always wary about saying this stuff. There's a danger of like accusing individuals of thinking like, yeah. you're not thinking in a planetary sense and you're not thinking in a sense of deep time. And again, that's what I guess climate fiction has sometimes been accused of being a bit preachy in that regard. But For sure. And, and I, I think, uh, you know, I, if you, um, I was talking to our last guest, Jennifer, about this, like for me as a, as a teenager, when I was an avid reader, reading was about escape for me. And actually the thing that I least wanted to do was have to engage with critically with topics. Yeah. And as you get older, you realise that actually in many ways that's impossible. But I still feel that you you have a, a large risk of, of skewing that balance between writing a story that people can enjoy and lose themselves in, yes. but also make them think. And, and you know, like you said, with some of those didactic texts, it's not a balance that everyone is capable of, of striking. No. So even if you're... You know, intentions are you know planetarily positive. You can't be um, holding your readers to account uh, necessarily. I think when we were talking um, about like the, the, the cult leader figure earlier, um, it it kind of makes me think there's a lot of potential in this like climate fiction, science fiction of sort of critiquing the individual as mm. an idea. Um, because if you are part of this like planetary process, if everything you do as a group impacts and creates this like Anthropocene that we're living in, you can't distinguish one human from other humans and then those humans from their environment. So there's a there's a impulse in some like writing to figure like a hero or like an individual and that's their story. Um, yeah. And I think it's common and I think it's understandable but there's definitely potential for sort of getting rid of that like neoliberal individualist mindset and thinking more about okay how can I approach literature in ways that um, enable me to think beyond myself as a contained boundary. Talking moving beyond the human or individual human perspective yeah. um, you could then move on to non-human couldn't you and certain texts speculative texts I know are foregrounded the non-human, and you work with more of those than I do, so yes. you're a better place to talk about them, Frankie. Yeah, so um, a lot of the texts I work on consider like the, the non-human and as a kind of a starting point for the literature. So some of my texts talk about these like human-cetacean hybrids living in a, a planet where literally like rising sea levels have meant that humans need to adapt, and that adaptation is like whale evolution or texts where uh, a human like metamorphosizes into the son of an ocean deity on planet earth and i think considering like this this move towards the non-human in a lot of science fiction literature i think it's not it's not necessarily new i mean like mary shelley's frankenstein was very much about like the non-human and in a lot of these texts the non-human isn't distinguished from the human. Um, they're kind of tied together, they co-create each other, and thinking more generatively with our non-humans, I think, 
kind of vital in, in like climate fiction. I'd argue that like thinking with the planet itself as like a non-human that we have to contend with, right? So the non-human isn't just inorganic or organic. It's, I mean, everything that isn't us, right? It's a weird paradox, isn't it? The, when the impact, the human impact on the earth is at its maximum that it's ever been, mm. there are more and more texts that are speaking from the, or coming from the perspective of non-human. But I suppose that is a, a direct reaction against the human impact upon the earth, the so-called Anthropocene and whatnot, yeah. isn't it? I think the Anthropocene just sort of really like typifies how humans aren't distinct systems from our environments and how like you can't say the human environment are like or like nature and culture are distinctly separate things. They produce each other, they grow into each other, they're what we imagine about our, our environment changes the materiality of our environment, which then changes us. Um, so I think that kind of consciousness of how we are, we are our environment in a way, is really um, sort of popping up in these like sci-fi texts and these sci-fi texts. I know you deal with some non-human. Um, not as many as you, and again, it comes through the filter of place more so than non-human, but mm. yeah, there is Richard Powers, The Overstory, which is quite a, a well-known example of a novel that tries to foreground trees, not not above and beyond humans, but alongside humans. There's like seven or eight different different character perspectives that the novel is told through, but there's also whole pages and scenes where it's just trees communicating with one another, for example. Well, thank you very much, guys. Before we go, I um, just wondered if you either have been reading or watching anything really, really interesting recently, or if you've got like a favourite example of the, the kind of stuff that you're looking into, or just a favourite book, just something that, you know, because I think, especially for you guys in literature, when you have to do this much, maybe it becomes more difficult to read for pleasure, to consume things without being critically that on it, and so I wondered if there's, if there's stuff that does allow you to really enjoy, yeah. um, you know, culturally engaging or something. I think responding to that, because I look at science fiction and speculative fiction in my thesis, I decided for fun that I'd start reading horror. Um, but the issue is, is now I <laughs> closely analyse every horror text I have, um, which pr partly explains um, why I'm so interested in like, ecophobia. I'm like, ooh, how can that like change my thinking on science fiction? You do get into that trap of not being able to um, separate them from your work, but I have been watching the new Game of Thrones show. Um. <laughs> there you go. Talking of genre and fantasy. Uh, perfect. Yeah. I'd say I'd give a shout out to a novel included in my thesis that I've just reread, um, and it's called The Sellout by Paul Beatty, which is like almost like a work. Well, it's a work of satirical humour around race issues in America. Um, it's absolutely hilarious. Basically, like you, yeah, numerous laughs per page. But it also touched on themes of environmental injustice in Los Angeles and the built environment. On that note, we will uh, finish up. Good luck with your research, guys, and thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to Frankie for their time and insight into all things genre, and to Felix for leading and mediating the conversation. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and do consider subscribing to Technocast wherever you get your podcasts. Listen out for the last of our series on genre, Sarah Richardson on fantasy, satire, and monsters. 
and also after that a special podcast based around the Cultivate conference, the Techne conference taking place in November. And if you'd like to share your research on a Technicast episode, do please get in touch at technecaster at gmail.com and I'll be back soon with more episodes. Until then, goodbye.